Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. In this episode, we are joined again by Dr. Kyle Bowling to discuss mobility, stability, different mistakes athletes are making in their recovery, and the CTM, Compression Tension Movement Company. As you know, I'm a huge fan of this company, and I use both the CTM band and the CTM rumble roller. Personally, for more on the company, I'm going to put some links to their website and about them in the show notes below. Uh, As you learned on the Monday episode about Dr. Bowling, He practices in Louisville, Kentucky, and treats professional athletes, Boston Marathon champions, Kentucky Derby winning jockeys, Olympians. The list goes on and on and on. He's a very impressive individual, and we are very excited and thankful to have the opportunity to talk with him today. So, Kyle, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So, yeah. So, when we talk about, you know, fitness, athletics, athletes, you know, you've clearly worked with some of the best of the best, high caliber people. Has there been anything that you've noticed about their training or the way they're living their life that kind of hinders their performance or holds them back? Well, as far as the, the, the professional athletes go or? Yeah. Why, why would they even come to you after all? Why do they need a chiropractor? <laughs> well, what I've definitely noticed um, and, and the experiences so far is that, you know, the, the, the body is the same, the human body is the same, but a lot of these higher end athletes, I feel like really pay attention to the, the little things mm-hmm. as far as recovery goes. So usually when, um, when, when these athletes will come and see me, they're not having like some crazy bad injury that's been chronic and that, and that they haven't been able to get a, get a hold of. It's more like little um, little things that they can tell are messing with their mechanics or their uh, or their their load of training mm-hmm. that they just want to nip in the nip in the bud. So, to a certain extent, they're kind of sweating the small stuff and paying attention to the little details in their performance and in their movement in general. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They they're they're doing all the little things. They're sweating the small stuff, and and part of that is like for. For that type of athlete, like they have the time to sweat the small stuff and the resources to to take care of the small stuff. Um, so that's not necessarily a, a knock against the, the amateur athlete. It's just you know we we have a, a lot of other stuff going on too while we're while we're training and just may not be able to to take uh, to take care of the, the the small things like they do. Right. No, that definitely makes sense. Time is a huge constricting factor for a lot of people. Now, with that, there's still a lot of people who get high training volumes most if not all days of the week uh, and they kind of skip out on recovery and mobility and these little small things like we're talking about. Um, So in a way I like to call a little triangle here so to speak is you know you have performance, you have your recovery state and your mobility and if your recovery state is lacking your mobility and performance will suffer. If your mobility is lacking, you're not going to recover as well, and your performance is going to suffer. And they all kind of link together, so to speak. Um, I know Greg Cook has the famous quote, you know, the body always sacrifices quality and movement for quantity. Um, You know, do you see that a lot, not necessarily with your professional athletes, but with the more recreational athletes or your weekend warriors or 
everyday kind of fitness uh, junkies. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, a, a couple points there is that, um, you know, I, I think you can certainly train um, more days of the week. I mean, they, yeah, I think there's, there's some athletes that can train seven days a week uh, and, you know, maybe take only a day or two off per month as long as they're recovering uh, correctly. Um, you know, you know, the, the way you make gains is, you know, after you shock the system with a, with a hard workout, you have to allow your, your muscles and your connective tissues in your body to rebuild itself back in between those big efforts. And that's how you improve. If you're always just going hard um, every day, you're a, you're not going to improve B you're going to get hurt um, sooner than sooner than later. So I think there's, there's ways to do it, but you just have to have to do it the, the right way. Are there, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, that's, that, that was, that was it. <laughs> yeah. um, are there any kind of common areas or regions that you've noticed people kind of neglect in their recovery more than others? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what, what a lot of people, and, and this is no fault of their own, um, is that, you know, and, and this is another Greg Cook type quote, um, or uh, Greg Rose is, I think, who I heard it from, who teaches with, with Greg Cook. But, um, you know, you, you can't fix stability, a uh, stability issue with more mobility. So a lot of people, you know, when they, when they have an ache or pain, whether it's like in the knee or the low back, will automatically think it's a, it's a mobility issue and you need to, you know, stretch that area or roll it out or, or do some massage or put a massage gun on it. And it's, it's a, the complete wrong approach. Right. And um, that kind of sounds like um, Vladimir Yanda's kind of um, stuff too when it comes to postural imbalances. You know, are the hamstrings really tight or are we actually just looking at overactive hyperspastic kind of hamstrings, so to yeah. speak. Um, yeah, absolutely. So kind of with that too, are there any areas that you notice um, people are kind of more prone to muscular tightness or more prone to muscular weakness that leads to dysfunction? Yeah, I mean, it's been kind of a, a, a amazing from a clinical standpoint because we're, we're like a, a year into COVID at this point, right? Or mm-hmm. approaching it. And um, the, the theme of, of issues that I've seen come into my office have, have completely changed where it's, it's the, you know, people are still active. They're very active, but it, in between activities, they're sitting at, uh, you know, their, their home office at their kitchen table or on their couch with, you know, maybe not quite as good of an ergonomic setup as they had in their office. Um, you know, you think about the, the, the common issues with posture, the lumbar spine held in flexion, shoulders kind of get stuck in that anterior uh, internal rotated type position, and then all hell breaks loose as far as uh, <laughs> aches and pains elsewhere. Right. That kind of brings up the concept of regional interdependence, how issues in one place can cause issues anywhere else in the body. Um, I posted yeah. uh, today, we're recording this on uh, February the 4th, and I posted about my really bad squat this morning. Uh, this was an old video, but I had real bad asymmetric weight shift where I was uh-huh. really uh, favoring one side over the other. And I ended up tracing that back to my lats. My lats were really tight and it was causing issues with my squat. And people often think, okay, well, the lats are in your back. What does that have to do with you know squatting? That's a leg movement. 
but they don't realize that your lats are active to brace and stabilize the spine, and they originate down in the sacrum and iliac crest. And, you know, everything is kind of connected, so to speak. Um, so I think just in general, the topic we're currently on is kind of a big thing that a lot of people tend to miss or not really understand just because they're not as familiar with the human anatomy, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a solid stream of like, you know, neck pain, shoulder pain, upper trap pain mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with those areas. And it's, you know, a, a wrecked T-spine that's been stuck in kyphosis for eight hours mm-hmm. that then causes that wildfire of overcompensation throughout the, throughout the rest of the body. Right. Um, it all, most things start at the spine. It's uh, kind of funny how that works. Um, yeah. So, you know, obviously, simple answer is move more, right? Well, you know, if sitting down is the problem, move more. Well, movement is great, but obviously, I've as we've talked about already, you can overdo anything. Um, so if we're crunched on time, we're told we need to move more, but, you know, we kind of have to recover from that and we have to recover from it quickly. To start, is there anything we shouldn't do is there any kind of recovery tactics or strategies that just aren't worth our time well i i, I don't have any that i would say with that type of like broad statement but mm-hmm. it, it, that would kind of take me back to you know making sure you have someone who can properly evaluate what's going on where if you're having some consistent low back pain if you're squatting mm-hmm. like having someone be able to break down your squat mechanics and figure out okay, is, uh, is your back hurting because there's something actually wrong with your back or is there something else nearby that's causing that, that overcompensation? So, you know, that, that would be one, one thing. The other one would be, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to, to someone who, who's having low back pain that's, that's from, uh, you know, uh, stability issue mm-hmm. elsewhere or in the actual, you know, low back that they'll then use a foam roller or a massage gun on the on the area that hurts and that's i mean that's not going to do anything to help if, if anything that's gonna it's gonna hurt it so it kind of it kind of takes me back to trying to fix a stability issue with with a with a mobility correction just isn't going to get you there right so when we talk about mobility and stability generally we're going to need stability at key places like the core and the gluteal regions to stabilize the spine and stabilize the lumbopelvic hip complex um where else what might we need that stability that people don't often think about well have have you ever seen the 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 graph that kind of shows that our how intelligent our body is where it kind of like alternates between Mm -hmm. stability and mobility right so like i i love looking at that thing it's it's amazing to me i mean a a lot of it depends on the the orientation of the joint but as far as you know other classic areas that that need um stability you know that the first two that come to mind would be the knee Mm -hmm. hinge joint so that's that's gonna you know we don't want to be able to caused too much multi-planar motion through a hinge joint mm-hmm. um another big one that i see is the bottom of the foot mm. that that a lot of people uh overlook where like the the bottom of the foot as far as all the different layers of of intrinsic muscles need to operate a lot like the core muscles do as it relates to the the, the rest of the the foot structure and i'm you know, sure i want sure. those muscles firing on all cylinders to support 
the you know whatever type of arch that particular person has to to not allow that wildfire and spreading of biomechanical issues going up the kinetic chain right kind of starting from the ground up there and i'm sure a lot of that has to do with footwear um so runners you know using those 500 mile shoes they're trying to get those last few miles out of them maybe they're fresh foam insert or something like that not meant for their foot and i would assume that leads to a lot of new forces being generated on the foot that it's not meant to take yeah yeah absolutely i mean some of the and uh I don't know if you've seen this too, but like some of the worst foot issues I've seen from people with, with chronic, uh, you know, plantar fasciitis or chronic Achilles involve, they've been in a, a, a super duper stability shoe for years and years, which mm-hmm. basically, I mean, it, I always think of it kind of like if we, if we injure our low backs and then we spend too long with our backs in, in, a, in a brace, like that ends up causing more damage than the actual injury because the core muscles atrophy and, and they forget what they're supposed to do. I think that the bottom of the foot works the, works the same way in a lot of cases. There, there definitely are, I think, some instances where the foot needs some extra support if you're trying to you know, recover a little bit quicker um, and, 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 um, and you know, those, those areas need a little bit more support temporarily, but long term, like the, the muscles of the foot are there to support the arch. Right. So would you say running kind of barefoot or minimalist on occasion to help train those muscles would be a beneficial thing for someone in endurance or other, you know, high ground reaction force type sport or activity? Or is that something we should kind of avoid? I personally think it's something we should where well, I, I should say not not everyone, but most people should avoid that because I think I've seen and talked to more people that have gotten hurt trying to adopt that type of running than mm-hmm. it's helped. So, um, I mean, it's because it, you factor in, you know, say you're going to go out for a one mile run, mm-hmm. about a thousand steps on each foot. If you if you take a foot that's not used to that minimalist approach and then you pound it on the ground a thousand times mm-hmm. one mile, and not many, you know, people go out for just one mile. Um, chances are that's going to rip up that structure. So mm-hmm. I think there's a much more responsible way to do it, uh, to, to work on those intrinsic foot muscles. But like the, the minimalist running craze, I think ended up messing up more people than it, than it helped. I think there's, there's certain aspects of it to take, mm-hmm. take away, like, you know, the, the midfoot strike, the, you know, making sure your foot's landing underneath your center of gravity. But the, um, the, those, those biomechanical, changes are good but the actual like barefoot running minimalist shoe i think it can be really damaging right now kind of working our way up the chain from the foot looking at the ankle more typically most runners if not every runner has tight calves and that's something that we see a lot in everyone anymore um you know general population people wear Uh, high heels or boots that have an elevated heel and they just have these real tight heel cords and they have very little to no dorsiflexion mobility Um, so maybe you could kind of touch a little bit on the interplay between the ankle complex and the foot complex because I know that's kind of a complex area and a lot of people kind of misunderstand the anatomy and mechanics of that area yeah, I mean, pr- proper ankle dorsiflexion, I think, is one of the MVPs. And, and as you know, like, I mean, that can completely wreck a squat. Like, if you can't, uh, 
if you can't adequately dorsiflex, you're going to stop at a certain point when you're going down and then usually compensate by putting some flexion into your spine, which if you're lifting something heavy enough is, is not going to be good for, for those intervertebral discs or, mm-hmm. or hip flexors. Or, uh, but, but yeah, as, as far as ankle dorsiflexion, that's a, that's a big one. I mean, so many of the common issues we get below the knee involve um, an underlying cause of, of um, not good ankle dorsiflexion. And, and to your point, yeah, the shoes we wear, I think, allow us to cheat the process too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a that's one that before I, I think anyone starting any type of training program that involves repetitive movements, like ankle dorsiflexion, should be one of the things that's looked at. Mm-hmm. And that's that you know if you're if you're trying to PR in your squat, like it might sound backwards that hey check those ankles, but that's one that can I can really go a long way. While we're kind of working our way up the chain here. Um, I kind of want to bring in the CTM products because I like how we're going and I like how personally I use the CTM band a lot for my calves and my feet and do active release. I use it to assist in mobilization and mobility type movements and that sort of thing. Um, So is this kind of, I know it's kind of a tool that you can use anywhere in the body for a lot of different reasons, but when you developed this product as a runner yourself, were you thinking like, oh my gosh, this is going to be great for the ankle foot? Or were you just thinking more, you know, this is good for everything? And, you know, can you talk a little bit about the uses of the band, the CTM band at the ankle and foot region? For sure. And yeah, to answer your question, that, that the first use of it was, um, uh, you know, trying to you know, it, well, first it comes down to, all right, evaluating, is this a true mobility issue after we evaluate that? And it shows that it is. Yeah, the band was used first to um, really amp up the myofascial release aspect of, of releasing um, bound up tissue in that mid-calf area. Um, and it comes from really looking at the studies that have been done. Because, I, I mean, I feel like overall, the general consumer, we've been hit hard with the marketing of, like, the $500 massage guns. That's the end-all, be-all for muscular pain. And I think that, that's horribly irresponsible because, you know, it's it's a tool for the toolbox, sure. But, um, you know, the studies that have been done on myofascial release show that, hey, the simple stuff that we use can work as long as it's used with the right mechanics. And... The, and the you know the, the studies that kind of prompted me to make the band were the ones that show, all right, if we're trying to you know uh, restore some of that relative motion between the layers of tissue, when you look at the different you know the the layer of skin, a couple of different layers of fascia, the layers of, of uh, muscle underneath there, you have to have something that's going to hyper compress the tissue to kind of get the slack out of the way, mm-hmm. and then once you compress the tissue, you have to have something that digs in to grab the tissue that's bound up and then only after you have those two factors set you have to move that tissue through its range of motion and that can help restore some of that lost uh that that lost range so so yeah it really came back to all right i this is this is not going to be the end-all be-all the band but it's going to be hopefully a a useful tool to use in your toolbox that's going to combine the effects of several other things but like i said like if it's if uh, if someone's got a, a shin splint from an, an arch that that isn't supported by foot intrinsics, the the band's not going to help. So it, it it ultimately comes down to all right, you want to have this stuff evaluated or know what to look for to know whether it's a mobility or, or stability issue. 
Right. right that and, was a really long-winded answer. No, <laughs> I, I like it. I'm here for it. Um, and, I mean, that all comes back to the reason that we have physical therapy and chiropractic professions in the first place is people need somewhere to go to get the functional movement screens that they need to kind of figure out, okay, what is actually going on here? Um, and I like how you said when you developed this, it was based on the movement principle because the body, after all, is designed to move. So if your recovery doesn't involve movement and it's just passive, you know, not saying there's not a place for passive recovery, you know, com- just passive compression, elevation, all these different things, they do have a time and a place. But if you're a high-level athlete or if you're an athlete trying to get to that next level of performance, I would imagine that you would want your recovery to match the task that you're doing in the first place, you know, specificity, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, talking about ankle dorsal flexion, it's like I I wanted to – I wanted to have something that can specifically help retrain that movement. And when you think about – you know, a foam roller, you can dig in there and move a little bit, but you're not going to truly get to the depth of the range of motion that you need. The floss bands work to compress and move, but there's nothing that digs into it. And then, you know, the, the massage guns are, are good if you can if you can press hard enough and move through the ranges. I just don't, I don't think we need to be spending two to five hundred dollars on that type of thing that, uh, <laughs> that won't necessarily be the be the end all be all. That and I mean, how are you going to hold the massage gun on your calf while moving back and forth into dorsiflexion or going through a gate pattern or something like that? It just, it's not feasible. Yeah, um, yeah that's why I, I didn't, I don't want to say it's completely impossible. <laughs> but maybe you just need to be much more athletic than I am to be able to do it. <laughs> No, I I definitely agree. I um my head's kind of spinning trying to picture that right now. Um, so moving up the chain, I know we kind of talked a little bit briefly at the uh, start of this episode about you know the spine, the hip, the knee. Um, when we think about the knee, I feel like we almost have to include the hip as well because a lot of these muscles cross both joints, the hamstrings, um, semi T, semi M, biceps femoris, long head all across both the knee and the hip, the IT band, not a muscle per se, but active at both the knee and the hip, um, rectus femoris, the list goes on. Um, so when it comes to the knee and the hip, you know, I think everyone always thinks of tight hip flexors and tight hamstrings, but we know that's not always the case, is it? Right, exactly. And that's, you know, going back to the, the people that are, you know, stuck in their, their home home offices right now, that's another one where, yeah, I've seen a lot of, um, you know, a, a reciprocal inhibition type thing where when you're, you're sitting with uh, your hip flexor shortened for eight hours a day, yeah, they're going to get shortened and tight, but then it's going to completely deactivate, um, you know, glute max, glute med. And, and that's going to wreak havoc elsewhere on, uh, on your mechanics and can overload the hamstrings. But um, I, I've, maybe it's doing a lot of gait analysis, but I, I, I always, one of the things that constantly comes up is, is uh, the role of the glute med for someone who's, mm-hmm. who's any type of one leg athlete. And, and that's not one that you necessarily think of uh, when you're talking about you know, hamstrings and hip flexors. We, uh, we have a professor, Dr. Mike Lair, who always comes back to 
ankle dorsiflexion, and the glute med stability. Those yeah. two things, he says, you know, you can pretty much solve any problem in the body if you have those two things. Um, so it's ironic that you brought that up too. Um, you know, just the rep- repetition of ideas here. You know, if multiple people who are high up continue to say, hey, the glute med is really important, maybe more people should start to, you know, focus their training on functionally um, addressing the glute med and ankle dorsiflexion instead of just more, you know, donkey kicks and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, uh, I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm like paranoid because so many people come to my office, um, it, it, you know, when we do gait analysis on, on a treadmill or just walking and, and we record it and, and, you know, play it back in slow motion, draw lines and fun stuff like that, like the, the glute med plays a role so much with Trendelenburg side. I'm, I'm worried that people think that I'm just automatically going to say glute med is easy, <laughs> but it, it, there, there really is so many issues with that. And it's one that's, uh, that's overlooked, I think. Now, when we think about the glute med, um, because this is clearly a stability region, um, I've never met someone who needs more mobility in the glute med anyways. Um, what are some of the kind of common exercises you go to to strengthen this muscle functionally? Well, there's, there's so much glute med, and it's, I, I wish you could think of there's a, um, there's a PT, I forget his name, but he actually did like a, a nerve conduction study on which exercises activated the glute med the, the most. And his was showing like even just like a sideline leg raise, leg abduction activated um, the, the glute just as much as some of the more fancy stuff that we get into in, in the clinic. So I've always kind of thought back to that. The one that I do probably most commonly, because I, I usually deal with people who, who don't have a ton of extra time to, to do rehab, uh, uh, just like the, the standing one leg hip tilt going up and down, basically like like replicating um, a, a Trendelenburg sign just mm-hmm. in a very slow and controlled way. Or if, or if there's, um, you know, someone who's, who's working from home or has a standing desk, I'll, I'll tell them like, all right, for different, you know, minute, two minute long intervals, stand on one leg and just lift that, that opposite hip up to activate that, um, that ipsilateral glute med until you feel it start to start to fire and, and, um, you know, hold that for an isometric hold for, for different lengths of time. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, being in, in more of a school setting, what, what, uh, what have you guys found to be more, more beneficial than, than others? Um, so first I want to say you saying that article, I had to pull it up real quick because I think I knew which one you were talking about. Um, from JOSPT 2007 EMG analysis of core, thigh, trunk, and hip muscles during nine rehab exercises from uh, Richard Ekstrom and Robert Donatelli. Um, and they looked at the side bridge, unilateral bridge, lateral step up, um, bird dog, uh, lunge, bridge, prone bridge, all of that. And for glute med, like you said, side bridge was the highest uh, activity um, over, over twice as much as most of the other exercises that we often think of for the glute twice med. Yeah. Um, so for the glute med, we're looking at um, uh, for our average value of EMG activity, they gave it a 74 
Um, this is percentage of MVIC, so percentage of maximum voluntary isometric contraction. They had 74% for the side bridge with a range of plus or minus 30. So potentially, this could be activating more than someone could voluntarily uh, isometrically contract it, which is kind of crazy. Um, then we think down to like a lunge, you know, a lunge is something we think of for the glutes. Um, it's a single leg exercise. We're looking at 29% activity with a range of 12 e each way here. So at most, we're looking at 41% there. Um, so it's kind of crazy to see just the numbers behind that study, just how more effective some of these exercises really are. Um, yeah. From my standpoint, personally, I've been doing a lot of single leg RDL variations with a contralateral load, as oh, well yeah. as um, step downs. So I'll have one leg on a box, and I'll do an eccentric step down, tap my heel to the floor, and then come up from there. So a nice yeah, three okay. to five second tempo, um, that sort of thing. So Yeah, that's good stuff. And... Um, I think ultimately, too, with these exercises, it's good to combine not just the body weight, but resistance bands and free weight. Because, you know, as you move, if you've got a band on, the more you um, <clears throat> exert the muscle, so to speak, the harder the exercise is going to get with a band. Whereas a free weight is going to be a constant load throughout the movement. So why not combine the two? and get a progressive resistance on a muscle with a constant load so you're at least getting some minimal load at any point throughout the range yeah love that um so kind of transitioning from knee and hip to um hip and back i think a lot of what we're talking about so far applies there as well the glute med plays a huge role in stability of the pelvis as a whole and last I checked, the uh, spinal column sits on the sacrum, which everything connects, and that's connected to the pelvic complex. Um, yeah. So is there anything further up the chain that could play a role in that lumbo-pelvic hip region, so to speak? No, I mean, that, those are the big ones for the, the lumbo-pelvic. It's just, it, like, right above that, it, it, it's the, the, the T-spine that I think has been mm -hmm. breaking everyone lately because of the ergonomics and luckily i know you have a awesome rumble roller because i use yeah. it a lot um and i really love the rumble design because your traditional foam roller it doesn't really dig in so to speak whereas the knobs on this one can kind of dig in a little deeper and penetrate further in um, i know not everyone listening has done a cadaver study but when you do a cadaver study you just you know you really appreciate how thick and dense and deep some of these muscles that we're trying to target are. And, you know, your general, you know, $5 foam roller is not going to get to that level uh, of muscle and tissue that we're targeting here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, yeah, I mean, that, I've, I've fussed at people about, talking about the mobility versus stability, I've fussed at people about not using the, the ridge roller on, on their low backs because mm -hmm. it's it's not going to help. <laughs> we want it to dig into that mid-back or hip or more dense area of tissue that needs some mobility, uh, for sure. Right, and with the low back, the reason we don't foam roll that 
is because it can increase the lordotic curvature of the lumbar spine, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can increase the, the the lordotic curve. So, you know, if it's a if they already have a facet issue or stenosis, that can really mess it up. And it's just most of the people, um, you know, it's it's very difficult to roll your low back and not make contact with like a spinous process or a part of the vertebrae that you don't want to be digging into compared to, you know, the QL or the, the, the paraspinal muscles. So there's ways to do it, but just in general, at least in my experience, like there, there's more correction that comes from stability training of the low back than digging in there with something. Right. That makes sense. And, um, you know, ironically you can work core stability with a foam roller um, that's one of my favorite ways to do things like planks, for example, is yeah. I'll put my elbows on the foam roller or I'll put a foot on the foam roller. So now we have a dynamic surface and it's not just static stability, but we're stabilizing our spine against a movement force or a unstable surface, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so next up would kind of be uh, where we started that shoulder neck kind of region. And when we think about this area, we don't think about, you know, minor dysfunction other than like upper trap tightness for the most part. I think a lot of us think about the major things we think about, you know, rotator cuff tear or impingement, which, um, I know impingement's kind of being questioned on if it's even a thing anymore. Um, but when we look at this region, um, stability ultimately everything comes back to that t-spine wouldn't you say with the scapula thoracic pseudo joint yeah absolutely that's a that's a big one um so just for those that aren't familiar with the shoulder complex and the st joint can you kind of uh dissect how that all works and how that kind of uh goes together so to speak yeah so i'll i'll try to uh, i'll uh try to do it without jumbling this up <laughs> but but it's like the uh, i'm trying to get someone maybe i had today where um yeah their their primary complaint would, was um you know pain right at the the ct junction so right at the the cervical thoracic junction that that uh c7 t1 area and so you know that's a that's a classic cue for me to say all right that's where the pain is that's the tip of the iceberg let's work out from there and see where it's coming from and then from there, typically we'll see a, a combination in, um, you know, in no particular order here of pecs being shortened and tight, shoulders kind of being stuck in that internally rotated position. And then when you look at what's going on uh, posteriorly, you see um, scapulas that kind of start to, to wing out a little bit, mm-hmm. which tells me initially, all right, those muscles of the mid-back probably aren't, aren't firing. When we think of that that uh, mid to lower trap, the rhomboid major, uh, part of the lats as well, um, and then from there, uh, you know, that's more of like the just looking at how things are, are situated. Then when you know we'll go into a little bit of a movement analysis, where I'll just have them stand up, lean forward and touch their toes, lean back into extension, do some rotational type stuff. Usually the you know I I go into the SFMA protocols pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Um, you see that all right, that, that T-spine is stuck in, in kyphosis and they're not, um, you know, they're, they're flexing okay with it, but then can't extend or rotate through it, which then kind of just causes that big tornado of stuff I just said that, that ends in, um, you know, dysfunction as far as mechanics go and then pain at that, at that CT junction. But that same thing is what I see with 
almost every, you know, of the quote unquote anterior shoulder pain, impingement type things, uh, upper trap pain that, uh, that, that so many of us have towards the end of the workday. Mm-hmm. But it's, that's, that's the combination of, of stuff that I feel like causes all of that. Now, is there any major uh, compensatory patterns that you see as a result of that? So do you notice people tend to externally rotate their shoulders more or hike their uh, shoulders up when they're lifting overhead or something like that? Yeah, for sure. You know, you'll, I think that leads to the overactive uh, traps. You know, I, I, um, I'll get a lot of like uh, uh, lateral epicondylitis with, uh, with people. So that, that uh, tennis elbow where mm-hmm. because they're so stuck in internal rotation, they start trying to overcompensate by, um, you know, uh, trying their best to externally rotate their shoulder. They can't. So then they start relying on, on more of a wrist movement that overworks the lateral epicondyles. Uh, even a lot of, you know, I'll get at least, you know, five or six people in a week that are having low back pain after squatting. And it has nothing to do with their low back or below. But when I watch their form, they're so stuck in kyphosis that when they go down into a squat, their uh, their lumbar spine stuck in, in forward flexion, which then compresses the disc and causes, you know, flexion intolerant uh, discogenic low back pain. Right. That makes sense. Now, with all these issues we're currently talking about, um, I know you brought up lateral epicondylitis. Um, I know the CTM band actually has uses for places like the arm. Um, I know you've posted videos on that before. I haven't used that myself personally because I haven't, I've been lucky enough to not experience those kind of pains or anything. Um, so could you kind of touch on how you might use a CTM band for the elbow and arm kind of region, so to speak? Yeah, so it's, it's, um, it's really useful for elbow pain because with the, with the band, as you see, you know, it has the attached knobs. Usually you want to take like three of them off to where there's one. Mm-hmm. And then you, you know, you dig that one, that one knob into the, the painful spot on the, uh, say it's that the lateral epicondylitis. So, uh, you know, right where those muscles attach. And then you'd kind of take your, um, you'd wrap it on real tight and then take your, your wrist and elbow through a functional range of motion. So that can definitely help with, um, was alleviating some of the symptoms but that would be a classic example of telling someone like hey like this could help the pain and, and loosen it up and get it warmed up for your workout or maybe help it recover a little quick uh, a little quicker but if you're having any of that other stuff going on with you know your shoulder being stuck and your mid-back being stuck um it's not going to fix it so you you know that's another example of hey this is, should be a tool in your toolbox that you use when needed mm-hmm. but you got to fix proximal to distal meaning fix that other stuff while you're working on this. Right. So start with the spine and work your way forward from there. Um, yeah. So at this point, we've kind of touched on the entire body for the most part anatomically. Now, just thinking about some different athletes and how we can kind of apply this, um, I think we did the running population pretty good justice with talking about the tib and, uh, the uh, posterior calf uh, with limited ankle dorsiflexion, the intrinsic foot muscles, and the glute med, uh, especially. I know you work with a very interesting population in Kentucky in horse jockeys. Um, so is there any major dysfunctions that you've seen in the 
horse jockey population and those kind of clients? And if so, how do you go about treating them and uh, fixing their uh, issues, so to speak? Well, I mean, first talk about like an interesting type of athlete to work <laughs> with. The horse jockeys were, were way up there. I mean, uh, an amazing experience, uh, it, unlike anything else I've ever done. But as far as their mechanics, I mean, it really is picture someone having to work in a fetal position, mm-hmm. but like up on a horse, like they're, they very, <laughs> they have the exact same stuff as what we might have being seated all day, but just times 10 because they're all crouched up. They're trying to be as, uh, you know, aerod- aerodynamic as possible. So they spend a lot of time with, um, with the same types of dysfunctions we have from the, the postural stuff as far as like shoulders rounded forward, hip flexors being that shortened position. So, um, but yeah, that, like that's a big one. So it's, it's really just, uh, more of, uh, more of the same types of things we see, uh, in the office. But then also most of those, uh, men and women have had multiple, multiple fractures through the years. Mm -hmm. So that, that they're all about like getting back up on the horse literally and figuratively as quickly as possible, probably even a little bit too soon, uh, you know, if you look at what their medical advice was <laughs> so there's a lot of um uh a lot of long-standing joint restriction uh and, and things like that the i remember uh there's one guy who this like this this made me fine-tune my skills at like at an uncomfortably fast pace but now <laughs> i'm good he um like do you guys do uh do you, do you guys do much joint manipulation yep mobilizations manipulations up to grade five yep yeah so so this particular rider he uh he, he lays it on the table and he's like all right i'd uh, like my my neck adjusted or manipulated before i before my first race but here's the thing i've had fractures at all of the even vertebrae in my neck <laughs> so two four six but i need like you know, that C, that, that CT junction adjusted and like mm-hmm. all the alarms are going off in my head. Like, okay, this is, this, this maybe would qualify as a contraindication to uh, <laughs> <laughs> force manipulation, but you've been riding for years, had it done and, and wanted it done. So, um, talk about being nervous working on someone, but it, it forces, it, it forced me to get super specific and very, very careful and deliberate and not not being lazy at all or cutting corners with working on uh work on some of these guys right and um you know i often think they say you know if a patient comes in and says i need a grade five then that's not the first thing you go out and do you kind of stop and slow down a minute like hold up wait a minute now you you want me to do a reverse air hard you want me to do a grade five on the ct junction like you, you know that by name um so it's kind of like a yellow flag kind of sign. I like to think to slow oh. down here. Um, oh yeah, but and, and like I mean, from from a from a chiropractic standpoint, like one thing we've really messed up is is uh, over the years that we're, we're getting better at it now. I think, but over over the years, uh, patient education where where we've described an adjustment or manipulation as like there's a bone out of place and we're putting it back to where it needs to be. Like that's not at all what happens. Mm-hmm. And and so there'll be people that come in that and some of them got upset with me 
where they'll be like, hey, I, I got my, you know, my, my C1's out of place. I need you to put it back where it needs to be. And I'm like, all right, well, sir or ma'am, if, you, if, if your C1 vertebrae is out of place right now, <laughs> A, how did you get here? Uh, B, I'm going to call an ambulance. <laughs> C, there's absolutely nothing I can do for, to, to help you there. And they, they uh, some of them have a good sense of humor about it, but some of them are like, no, my, my last chiropractor, he, he, you know, the, the the bone would go out of place and, and he put it back where it needs to be. And, and, you know, they were basically lied to. Right. They hear, um, they hear the snap, crackle, pop and think it's the bone moving, but they don't yeah. realize the cavitation is actually just gas bubbles being released from the joint space. Yeah. And so I, I think... I think calling it a mobilization or manipulation is much more accurate than calling it an adjustment. I think that's, that's, it's not, not accurate. No, I can, um, understand and appreciate that. Um, so I know you've worked with a lot of athletes in other sports as well in the past at high levels. Um, any other sports other than running and horse jockeys that really jump out to you as far as, you know, unique dysfunction patterns and unique things that you've had to address. Yeah, I mean, I've had uh, quite a few uh, NFL players come in, and they, um, I've, I've been surprised, at least the guys I've worked on, with how good a shape their bodies are in, as far as, like, uh, you know, the, I would call the jockeys up at the top as the hardest types of bodies to work on, mm-hmm. just because of the, the abuse that they have to put themselves through on a daily basis, you know, talk about not recovering. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so they're, they're in kind of rough shape, but some of the, some of the NFL guys, I, I, and I feel like it's uh, obviously football is a brutal sport, but at least some of the ones I've worked with have really done a good job of, of taking care of themselves uh, throughout. Cause I, I would have, I would have guessed that a NFL lineman would be very, very difficult to work on as far as, uh, you know, cavitating joints and, and stretch them out, things like that. But they're, but they're not typically, at least what I've found. That's good. Um, and I think some of that might come from, you know, the era of football that we're living in. I mean, we're going to watch a Super Bowl on uh, the upcoming Sunday here where we have a quarterback, uh, Tom Brady, who's, what, 43, 44 years old. And, I mean, yeah. 10 years ago, the thought of someone quarterbacking past age 40 was – probably unheard of it's insane and um the, the, the one thing i can't go with tom and mm-hmm. uh and yeah i mean it's like he's been to, he's played for 20 years and he's been to 10 super bowls like that that's that's ridiculous mm-hmm. but like did did you uh did you read his book or, mm-hmm. or hear about tb12 did, didn't he say like he can't get sunburned because of how hydrated he stays Is yeah there was some there was some stuff in there i was like uh kind of skeptical about um, yeah. I liked what he had to say about prioritizing mobility and recovery and um, his emphasis on balance throughout his body, though, with resistance band training and keeping both sides relatively equal uh, yeah. through extensive, you know, unilateral work. Because I would imagine um, we see it in baseball players a lot. They'll throw all the time on one side. Well, they're not throwing both hands. So what happens? Their body adapts. They develop a um, GERD and GERG kind of uh, offset ratio, so to speak, where they can externally rotate their throwing arm, 
pretty far. But they have dysfunction when it comes to internal rotation. And then when you look at your shoulder external rotation on your non-throwing arm and internal rotation on your non-throwing arm, the ratio is not necessarily even. Um, so that kind of, I, I don't want to use the word adaptation or maladaptation, so to speak, but that's essentially what it is. The body adjusts to the demands of the sport and activity, and that might not be beneficial for other things that you're doing. It's great for something like throwing a ball, but it's not great for life or pressing overhead, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And yeah, let me like Tom Brady. Like, if there is one person who can not get sunburned, it's probably Tom Brady. <laughs> but, but not like, and and I remember at uh, um, this is another FMS thing. But they were talking about how they've noticed that like some of the some of the elite elite athletes are kind of in their own category that might have if we're just looking at at their their movement evaluations some really messed up mechanics, but. You know that's that's how their body adapts, and, and you don't necessarily want to fight against that, especially if they're healthy and not having any injuries. But um, I've I've definitely noticed that with with some uh, higher end athletes too. I've worked with triathletes and, and runners mainly. Very interesting. Um, now, when you say triathletes, do you get the Ironman extreme hardcore population too, or? Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of those guys. Like, I mean, I, if you were to say you know, what's the worst SFMA evaluation you've ever seen? Like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, the, I don't want to say his name, but um, he was one of the elite guys, one of the elite pros, made a lot of money off triathlons, like had the most wrecked mechanics I've ever seen, but, you know, was healthy uh, and, and just crushed it as far as triathlons go. So it's like, I, I don't know the explanation for that, but their body did what it needs to do to perform at a high level. It's um, the human body itself is very impressive on what it can do. And, um, you know, obviously optimizing function is just going to take it to the next level. Um, And as we've talked about today, that's where, you know, products like the CTM band and rumble roller, when used appropriately, can help you get to that next level if that's what you're looking to do. Um, so with that, uh, Kyle, is there any kind of closing thoughts that you want to share with everyone? I mean, no, this is a lot of fun talking about this stuff. I, I get this nerd, this nerdy stuff. I can talk about <laughs> like for 10 hours, so I, I better cut myself off, but no, thank you so much for having me. You're doing awesome work. Um, keep crushing it. And, uh, I'm, I'm here to, to join in and talk anytime you'll have me. <laughs> thank you. We, uh, we really appreciate it. Appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. And for those listening, thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll see you next week.